All right, praises be to our loving Father that we are able to continue to study his words and his commands. In our episode for today, the BQA, we're going to be looking at the questions surrounding the Christmas celebration, which is, of course, very timely. And the reason why we decided to do this question instead of continuing the one about homosexuality. So we will proceed with the Christmas questions. And the questions given to us is from one of our viewers. And this is what this person has to say. Good day, Brother John. My questions are about Christmas. What is the pagan origin of Christmas? That's number one. Number two, what does the Bible say about celebrating Christmas? Number three, does having Christmas decorations, such as a Christmas tree, has a pagan origin too? Is it okay to put on decors or decorations? How about for businesses? How can we not participate in any pagan activities when the whole world is celebrating Christmas? Number five, is it okay to participate in the office Christmas party? Is it okay to give on Christmas? Uh, we often decline to give to carol, carolers, uh, telling them we don't celebrate Christmas. Uh, we give every day, but we don't give during Christmas. Should we not accept our Christmas bonus mandated by law? The former church tells us not to participate in any activities if we accept our Christmas bonus. Okay, thank you for your time. Uh, Abba, bless you both. So let's go ahead and look at question number one. What is the pagan origin of Christmas? Now, of course, when we read the Holy Scriptures, it doesn't mention anything at all about Christmas. The word Christmas, the term Christmas is not found in the Holy Bible. And we find no commandment whatsoever that teaches us or commands us to celebrate the birth of our King Yahusha. We cannot read that in the Holy Scriptures. So what, what is the origin then of the Christmas celebration? We go to this book, Religion, Doctrine and Practice for Use in Catholic Schools. This is what it says. The word Christmas is composed of Christ and Mass. So it's a compound term composing of two words, Christ and Mass. And the feast is so-called because... On that day, the Mass commemorating Christ's nativity is celebrated. The celebration is held on December the 25th. So what is the meaning of Christmas? It is composed of two words, Christ and Mass. Its purpose is to celebrate with a Mass. And so it's a Catholic term. Catholicism basically invented Christmas. And so it was invented as a mass in order to celebrate the birth or the nativity of our King Yahusha the Christ. However, who was the one who invented this? Was it the apostles? Uh, was it Christ himself? Who, where did this come from? Let's read from the Encyclopedia New Shape Herzog, Encyclopedia of Religious Knowledge. An Armenian writer of the 11th century states that the Christmas festival invented in Rome by a heretic, Artemon, was first celebrated in Constantinople in 373 AD. And so Christmas, the mass which celebrates the birth of our king Yahushua, was not invented until 373 AD. AD. It was invented not by the apostles, but by a heretic in Rome by the name of Artemon. Now, why? What, what is the role of Rome at this point? Well, of course, we know that Christianity during the days of the apostles, it was under the empire of Rome. As a matter of fact, during the days of the apostles, the followers and disciples of our King Yahushua 
they were heavily persecuted by the emperors of Rome. And so they were systematically killed because of their faith in our King Yahushua. And this persecution, this systematized form of persecution and killing of followers of Yahushua, it did not end until the coming of Constantine, who adopted the Edict of Toleration. And because of this, Christianity became favored. As a matter of fact, it even became eventually the religion of Rome. However, we know what happened when this took place. What Rome did was to use um, the pagan ideas and pagan beliefs and incorporated that into their system of faith. And so in 373, Rome is in power, right? They're the emperor, and they adopted Christianity. Many people influence the development of this idea that Christmas is to be celebrated uh, in, on December the 25th. However, if we actually look at the source of this celebration, it predates even the birth of the Messiah. It goes way back. You see, when they invented Christmas in the fourth century, it was actually an existing celebration that they attached the name Christ Christmas to. What is that? According to the Encyclopedia Americana, it was, according to many authorities, not celebrated in the first centuries of the Christian church, as the Christian usage in general was to celebrate the death of remarkable persons rather than the birth. This is why we know it's not in the Bible. It's not preached by the apostles, invented by the disciples of Yahushua, because it was not done in the first century concerning uh, the followers of Yahushua. Instead, this was invented in the 5th century, in the 4th century, a feast was established in memory of this event, Christ's birth in the 4th century. In the 5th century, the Western church ordered it to be celebrated forever on the day of the old Roman feast of the birth of Saul, as no certain knowledge of the day of Christ's birth existed. And so when they invented, when Rome invented um, the Christmas celebration in the fourth century, it was really a celebration of an existing festival. What is that festival? The old Roman feast of the birth of Saul. And who is Saul? He happens to be the Roman son God. And so there was already in existence the celebration, a Roman one at that, a feast of the birth of Saul. And when they had this celebration, when did they have it? And what was involved in this celebration? Let's look at Encyclopedia Britannica. In the Roman world, the Saturnalia, December 17, was a time of merrymaking and exchanging of gifts. December 25 was also regarded as the birthday the birth date of the Iranian mystery god Mithra, the son of righteousness, on the Roman New Year, uh, January the 1st, houses were decorated with greenery and lights and gifts were given to children and the poor. To these observances were added the German and Celtic Yule rites. This is why you often hear of the Yuletide season, when the Teutonic tribes penetrated into Gaul, Britain, and Central Europe. Food, Good fellowship, what we call today parties, 
right? Like a Christmas party, the Yule log and Yule cakes, greenery and fear trees, gifts and greetings, all commemorated different aspects of this festive season. Fires and lights, symbols of warmth and lasting life have always been associated with the winter festival, both pagan and Christian. And so when they had this celebration to commemorate the birthday of Saul, the sun god, it involved many pagan practices. Remember, when Rome was in power as an empire, they controlled many places throughout Europe. And when they conquered nations, when they conquered territories, they adopted the pagan beliefs. So there was like a mixture of many pagan beliefs. And when it comes to the celebration during the winter time, it was attached to the birthday, not only of Mithra, the son of righteousness, but also Saul, the Roman sun god. So basically they were the same. And in this celebration, it wasn't just one day. It was basically a festive time of the year. And so in this festive time of the year, they engage in many customs. Customs of merrymaking and exchanging of gifts. And this is why when people celebrate Christmas today, there's a, this custom of exchanging of gifts. And this comes from the Saturnalia of festivities, which is a Roman practice, a pagan practice. Someone might say, well, isn't it true that when the wise men went to visit Yahusha, the Christ, when he was born? Who were the wise men, by the way? My wife tells me it was Belshazzar Malkar, what is it? Belshazzar. I don't even know about those names. <laughs> I don't know where those names came from, but... Uh, the wise men, they gave gifts. And so they say, well, that's the biblical basis for the giving of gifts during the Yule time season, during Christmas time, because the wise men gave gifts. Well, the reason why the wise men gave gifts is because they were from the East. And according to Eastern customs, if you were going to set foot in the presence of a king, you dare not go there without presenting gifts. It was a custom. So they were going to look for the, the, the king that is to be born, right? And so when they found him, they gave him the gifts that is that belongs to a king. So that was the giving of the gift scenario found in the book, in the gospels, a gospel narrative about the birth of our king, Yahusha. Also involved in Saturnalia, involved in these festivities, houses were decorated with greenery and lights and gifts were given to children, the poor, Food and good fellowship, the Yule log, Yule cakes, greenery, trees, gifts and greetings, fires and lights, symbol of form. These are all customs associated with Saturnalia. And these are also what we practice today when people celebrate the Christmas uh, celebration. So we can see the pagan origin of Christmas. It goes way back to the celebration of Saturnalia during the time of the Roman occupation of the world. And in this celebration, they incorporated many pagan practices involving false gods like Mithra and gods of Ger German and Celtic gods and other pagan practices, including Santa Claus. And so that's all part of the celebration of Saturnalia. 
million. And so when uh, the uh, Constantine decided to adopt um, the celebration of the nativity of Yahusha and incorporating it with the birthday of the sun god Saul, you know, what was the response of many of the practicing Christians during that time, the faithful ones? Well, this is what the encyclopedia says. Christian preachers of the West and the Near East protested against the unseemly frivolity uh, with which Christ's birthday was celebrated. While Christians of Mesopotamia accused the Western brethren of idolatry and sun worship for adopting as Christian this pagan festival. So when they first adopted uh, the celebration of Christ's birth and linked it with the celebration of Saturnalia and the worship of uh, the, the false god, the false sun god, Saul, it met with a lot of controversy. Many people opposed it. Those who were faithful to Yahushua, well, they rejected it. But of course, uh, they do not get to make the decisions. It was the emperor who makes the decisions. And that was, of course, Constantine. And so what led him to decide, let's go ahead and unite. You know, let's use the birth of the Christ. And let's connect that with a celebration of the, the birth of the sun god. Well, according to the same encyclopedia, uh, the pagan Saturnalia and Brumalia were too deeply entrenched in the popular custom to be set aside by Christian influence. Remember, uh, the Roman Empire, they loved Saturnalia. That was a favorite holiday because it was filled with merrymaking, right? They loved it. And so they were not willing to give it up. The recognition of Sunday, the day of Phoebus and Mithras, as well as the Lord's Day, by the Emperor Constantine as a legal holiday, along with the influence of Manichaeism, which identified the Son of God with the physical Son, may have led Christians of the 4th century to feel the appropriateness of making the birthday of the Son of God coincide with that of the physical Son. The pagan festival, with its riot and merrymaking, was so popular that Christians were glad of an excuse to continue with celebration with little change in spirit or in manner. And so despite Christian preachers during the fourth and fifth century who protested against the Christian celebration, associating it with uh, the uh, Saturnalia, well, the people of Rome, they could not give that up. They loved it too much. And so they wanted to look for an excuse so that they can go on with it and attach to it the Christian name or Christianize this pagan festivity. And so the idea of Manichaeism, which identifies the sun god with the physical sun. And so because they worshiped the sun god who was Saul, there was a connection. And so they decided, let's go ahead and make this celebration of the son of God with the celebration of the sun god. And this is why on December the 25th, the choice of December 25th, was influenced by the fact that the Romans, from the time of Emperor Aurelian, had celebrated the feast of the sun god, Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun, on that day, December 25th, was called the birthday of the sun, and great pagan religious celebrations of the Mithras cult were held all through the empire. And so eventually, um, all of so-called Christianity would adopt December 25 as Christmas. And so Christmas has 
a pagan origin. Not only a pagan origin, its origin is that involving the worship of the sun god. You see, the Christmas celebration of December 25 is a pagan feast in honor of Saul, the unconquerable son, Saul, the sun god. Okay. Uh, now, it's really ironic that many people today who believe that Yahushua was born on December 25 do not actually use the Bible to determine that date. Many just assume it's to be true. However, for those who read the Bible, they know that you cannot read anywhere in the Holy Scriptures that Yahushua was born on December 25. As a matter of fact, if we look at the clues concerning when our King Yahushua was born, we know it cannot be December the 25th. According to this book, Palestine and Time of Christ, the sheep passed the whole summer in the fields. In the month, which corresponds to the half of October and the half of November, the sheep were brought back into the fold and kept there through the winter. And so what he was describing, the author of Palestine and Time of Christ, was the behavior and custom of shepherds and sheep. And so during the summertime, the sheep would come out of their pen and they would spend their whole summer in the fields, right? Because it's summertime. And so when did they go back uh, to their fold? They go back to their fold during the time which corresponds to half of October and the half of November. So by that time, they're already inside their sheepfold. And so we know it cannot be December because December, the, the shepherds and the sheep, they would not be in the fields. But in the description of the birth of our King Yahushua, well, the shepherds and the sheep, they were out in the field. So we know it could not have been after October. It could not have been after November. And so December was out of the question, right? Not only that, according to Adam Clark's commentary on scripture, it was a custom among the Jews to send out their sheep to the deserts about the Passover, early spring, and bring them home at the commencement of the first rain. During um, the time they were out, the shepherds watched them night and day as the first spring began early in the month of Marchesvan, which answers to part of our October and November. We find that the sheep were kept out in the open country during the whole of the summer. And as these shepherds had not yet brought home their flocks, it is presumptive argument that October had not yet commenced. And consequently, our Lord was not born on the 25th of December when no flocks were out in the fields, nor could uh, he have been born later than September, as the flocks were still in the fields by night. On this very ground, the nativity in December should be given up. The feeding of the flocks by night in the fields is a chronological fact. So according to commentators, when you look at the condition of the sheep, the flock, the shepherds, what they were doing when Yahushua was born, they concluded it could not have been December. As a matter of fact, it, it could not be after September. It could be on September, but not after September. Could not be in October, could not be in November, definitely not December. So when was our King Yahushua born, if not December 25th? We studied this before, and so we would like to point you to one of our BQA shorts. We have a BQA short concerning the birth of our King Yahushua. We believe he was born 
on a feast of trumpets, which falls on the month of September. And so we have uh, this uh, episode, the BQA Shorts, does the Bible precisely tell us when Christ the Messiah was born? So please um, tune into that episode and listen for yourself and test it to see if you agree with our conclusion. Of course, this is we're not trying to be dogmatic here. This is the we will look, we just look at the biblical clues and form a conclusion based on what the Bible reveals about the date of the birth of our king, Yahusha. And you'll be surprised. The Bible is actually pretty clear, pretty precise, as a matter of fact, concerning the birth of our king Yahusha. So we're not going to talk about this here because we don't have enough time, but please do refer to the BQA short, does the Bible precisely tell us when Christ the Messiah was born? So let's go to question number three before we go to question number two. Uh, does having Christmas decorations, such as a Christmas tree, does it have a, a pagan origin as well? Is it okay to put decorations on your Christmas tree? Well, how many here bought a Christmas tree? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Um, you have a Christmas tree. I mean, what are Christmas trees anyway? What kind of tree is a Christmas tree? Pine tree? What kind of tree is that? What category of tree? Like an evergreen? It's an evergreen tree, right? That's what a Christmas tree is. So do Christmas, I mean, is it of pagan origin to put a tree? Well, the answer is a definite yes. Not only does it have a pagan origin, it's actually an expression of rebellion against Yahuwah himself. Why do we know this? Let's go back to the roots of the origin of this in the book of Genesis. We're going to go way back, all the way to Genesis. Genesis chapter 10, 8 to 11. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before Yahuwah. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before Yahuwah. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech. Akkad and Kalme and the land of Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kalah. And so we go back all the way to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10 described what happens after the flood. So remember what happened after Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve was born, uh, were created. They gave birth to Seth. Um, and we know that they expanded, but at the same time, wickedness violence, corruption, it became more and more prevalent. And so Yahuwah decided to destroy the whole world with a flood. And so after the destruction of the whole world with a flood, he sets apart Noah and his three sons. I mean, they were the only ones left, right? I mean, the family of Noah, all eight of them were the only ones left. And so they're going to be, they can repopulate the earth. And so when this happened, guess who was trying to mess things up? Who do you think is going to mess things up? The adversary, right? The serpent, the devil. He's going to try and destroy what Yahuwah wants to do, which is to use Noah and his sons to repopulate the earth. And so he found his man with Nimrod. How many here have heard of Nimrod before? We've probably heard of Nimrod, but Nimrod basically represents the person that will be the future Antichrist. Nimrod in the book of Genesis will reappear with a different name, the Antichrist. 
because they both represent rebellion against Yahuwah. The spirit that drives them is one that is of the devil. Okay, so the devil has found his man, Nimrod, the mighty hunter before Yahuwah. You see, at this point, Yahuwah tells them, repopulate the earth. I'll go scatter. But Nimrod decides, no, I'm going to build my kingdom. That's why he built a kingdom where? In Babel. In Babel, they built the Tower of Babel. And so he rebelled against Yahuwah. He basically told Yahuwah, no, I'm not going to go scatter. I'm going to build my own kingdom. If you can try to destroy me, I'm going to build a tower, <laughs> right? And so Nimrod, described in the book of Genesis, became a mighty warrior. He became like a folk hero, a legend, even after his death, because of the work of Shatan. According to ancient writings, Nimrod became well-known. You know, so many different cultures writes about a Nimrod. That's because he was an actual person. He was a mighty person, and he did great exploits. But he rebelled against Yahuwah. Ancient writings reveal so much about this man who started the great organized apostasy from God. In fact, Nimrod founded the Babylonian system that has gripped the world ever since. He institutionalizes defiance of God in a way that still dominates our world. So many of world dictators today, you find the spirit of Nimrod in them, like Hitler, Stalin, uh, even world dictators, you find the spirit of Nimrod in them. They want to control the people and they want to be the one to be worshipped and adored. That's the spirit of Nimrod, the spirit of the Antichrist. Even Josephus, the historian who wrote in the first century, wrote about Nimrod. He also gradually changed the government into tyranny. He, Nimrod, also said he would be revenged on God if he should have a mind to drown the world again for that he would build a tower too high for the waters to be able to reach. Now, the multitude uh, were very ready to follow the determination of Nimrod and to esteem it a piece of cowardice to submit to God. So the spirit of Nimrod is to basically to rebel against Yahuwah God. And he organizes a system which is bent towards fulfilling that purpose to rebel against Yahuwah. We call this the Babylonian system. And this system is alive and well even today. Something that we need to be aware of and be mindful of. And so Nimrod was a real person. But even after his death, his influence lives on under many names and different kinds of influences. Nimrod was so evil, it is said, he married his own mother, whose name was Semiramis. I want you to remember Semiramis. Semiramis, through her schemings, had become known as the Babylonian queen of heaven. That, mean, that made Nimrod the divine son of heaven. Together, they became a perverted mother-son tandem. And so we have this picture of mother and son, a Babylonian picture the tandem of divine son of heaven queen of heaven sometimes uh, you will find that in images today of the virgin mary and then the the baby jesus right it's very similar when you look at the picture of semiramis and nimrod the queen of heaven and the divine son of heaven so a lot of these what we see today in catholicism you can find its beginnings 
during the development of the philosophy that was started by Nimrod, which developed the Babylonian system. So many Babylonian systems and ideas remain alive today. And so we're going to show you how it's connecting to Christmas. According to Satan's Great Deception, Dr. C. Paul Meredith in his book, with the civil power he withheld, Nimrod set himself up as the priest of the things worshipped by the people to obtain a stronger hold on them and gradually put himself in place of the true God. So he wants to be worshipped, Nimrod. He also presents himself as the priest of the things worshipped by the people. Who is the true high priest, by the way? Our king, Yahusha. Who is the true father, the true God? It is Yahuwah. So this Nimrod and his philosophy, his way of thinking, his spirit, it's to replace Yahuwah. He's going to be the one to, worship, to be worshipped. And also to replace the son of God. So he's going to be rebelling against Yahuwah, the father, and also the son, Yahusha. That's Nimrod for you. And he's going to be alive and well. His spirit's going to be kicking in during the end times. Now, of course, eventually Nimrod, the actual Nimrod, eventually dies, right? The Bible's silent on how he dies. But ancient tradition says he came to a violent end. Tradition suggests that Nimrod may have been executed by Shem, son of Noah, who deeply opposed Nimrod's rebellion against God. Shem was a son who walked most closely in the ways of God that his father taught him. The tradition continues that Nimrod's body was cut in pieces, burned, and then sent to various families of the earth as a warning from God. Nimrod was cut down like a tree is felled by the axe. And so uh, this is not biblical, of course. It's according to ancient traditions. Um, but we know the Antichrist, when Yahusha comes with the breath of his mouth, what would happen to um, the Antichrist and the false prophet? They will be destroyed and they'll be cast into the lake of fire. So we know they're going to suffer an end. But Nimrod eventually died. However, even though he died, the influence of Nimrod actually grew even more. Why? Well, while Nimrod was alive, he had put himself in the place of God by his dictatorial rule. When he died, his admirers continued to worship him as a divine hero. They called him, look at that, Baal. And so we know the origin of Baal was actually Nimrod. All the way back in Genesis chapter 10, all the way back after the time of the flood. And so Baal, a name found later throughout the Old Testament. Baal means master or Lord. It was only natural that Nimrod should claim that name. He put himself in the very place of the true Lord or master of the entire universe. But Baal was not Nimrod's only other name. He had many names. <laughs> he had many names. In Babylonia, he was known as Tammuz. And I want you to keep that in mind, Tammuz. In Syria and Greece, Adonis which also meant Lord, by the way. In Egypt, he was the god Osiris and was identified in mystery symbolism as the bull. And so we know Nimrod, even after his death, Satan, who is behind his power and fame, after his death, creates this system involving false worship and false deities. And so he becomes associated with Baal, Tammuz, Adonis, Osiris, and many more. Even Molech. Remember Molech? Right? And they would 
sacrifice their children to Molech, that's also Baal. That's also of, that's Nimrod who initiated that. He was the one who first started the, the offering, the sacrifice of children to false gods. After Nimrod's death, Semiramis became ruler of her son's kingdom. Used by Satan, she spread an evil doctrine that Nimrod survived as a spirit being. She promoted a mystery religion, which she claimed that Nimrod now was the sun god. So the original sun god was who? Nimrod, who perpetrated this idea, Satan. Who was the, the preacher of this idea? Semiramis. Nimrod becomes the sun god. Of course, he will have different names. He would eventually be called Saul, the sun god, and other names. Okay, according to uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica, what would Semiramis, the mother, be associated with? Connected with the doves of Ishtar or Astarte, Easter, the irresistible charms of Semiramis, her sexual excesses, and other features of the legend all bear out the view that she is primarily, primarily a form of Astarte, and so fittingly conceived as the great queen of Assyria. So Semiramis is being associated with Astarte. Remember Ahab and Jezebel? When Yahuwah said that Ahab and Jezebel, they were really bad, right? I mean, what kind of worship were they involved in? Baal and Astarte. Now you know where it comes from. It comes from Semiramis and Nimrod. According to Lang's commentary, Ashtaroth corresponds to Hera, the star queen. Ashtaroth means the star. Moon and stars, the luminaries of the night sky, are blended in Ashtaroth. She represents the collective host of heaven. And so now we have the queen of heaven and the sun god. They unite. And they're influencing pagan religion. Not just Babylon, but all religions of the world, even those that is cloaked in so-called Christianity. And this is why you have the Virgin Mary and the Sun God, the nativity scene. All of this come from the same origin, which is the devil using Nimrod and Semiramis as the template for spreading these wicked lies. And so what does this all have to do with the Christmas tree? Here it is. It's interesting. Semiramis was worshipped as the queen of heaven or the great mother of God. She committed fornication with the leading men at that time, coaxing them into accepting this mystery religion that took the place of the true worship of God. She even claimed that one of her illegitimate sons, Tammuz, was brought into being by a magic beam of light from the great sun God, claiming the baby to be reborn Nimrod. The promised seed of Genesis 3.15. Semiramis originated the story that a full-grown evergreen tree sprang overnight from a dead tree trunk, uh, a dead tree stump, which symbolized the springing forth unto new life of the dead Nimrod. On each anniversary of his birth, this is why it's an annual feast, Semiramis claimed Nimrod would visit the evergreen tree and leave gifts. Upon it, the new evergreen tree symbolized that Nimrod had come to life again in Tammuz. 
And so when Nimrod dies, Semiramis spreads this false doctrine about Nimrod. What is that? He says that uh, the sun god, right, sent a beam of light, and all of a sudden there was a miracle, and the promised seed was fulfilled. You see, Satan knows about Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is when Yahuwah makes a promise to Adam and Eve. Before they were removed from the Garden of Eden, Yahuwah says, I'm going to have a promised seed, and this promised seed is going to destroy Satan, right? Who is that promised seed? Yahushua. Satan knows about that. And so what does he do? He's going to come up with a lie that will replace the, the true fulfillment of Genesis, Genesis 3.15. And so that's what he does here with Semiramis. They create a myth. They create a religion from this. And so that religion is the religion of Tammuz. So Tammuz is the resurrection of Nimrod. Nimrod, who died, becomes God, and then he descends to become Tammuz. Tammuz is now the sun god represented by the evergreen tree. And so according to this custom book, an old Babylonian fable told of an evergreen tree which sprang out of a dead tree stump. The old stump symbolized the dead Nimrod. The new evergreen tree symbolized that Nimrod had come to life again in Tammuz. Among the Druids, the oak was sacred. Among the Egyptians, it was the palm. And in Rome, it was the fear, which was decorated with red berries during the Saturnalia. And so what the Christmas tree actually symbolizes is Nimrod's resurrection as Tammuz. And so when people bring a Christmas tree into their house and they decorate the Christmas tree, what are they doing? They are basically reenacting the resurrection of Nimrod as Tammuz. And when you think about that, and the fact that so many people who profess Christianity are reenacting this form of worship, worship of Tammuz, in their own homes, it's pretty frightening, really, how deeply Satan and his system of apostasy is infiltrating so many homes in the world today. And not many, and people are not aware that they're doing that, right? Because you put gifts, you decorate the tree, all of that is worshiping Tammuz. All of that is worshiping Nimrod. This is why it makes sense when you read scripture. Tell me, if you read the Old Testament, you're going to come across many prohibitions concerning the worship of trees. You notice that? For example, in the book of 1 Kings 14.22. Now Judah did evil in the sight of Yahuwah, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins, which they committed, more than all that their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places, sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. The Bible mentions all the time, every green tree. Tree. Now you might think, okay, a tree is usually green until winter. Winter, there's only certain types of trees that remain green, right? What, what trees remain green even during winter? The evergreen, which is the quote unquote Christmas tree. In a literal sense, evergreen means that a tree remains green forever. 
So the Bible says every green tree, it's referring to the evergreen tree. And in the, in the Holy Bible, in many biblical references, the evergreen tree is associated with idolatry and false worship. This is why in Jeremiah chapter 10, Yahuwah gives the following warning. Jeremiah 10, 1 to 4, hear the word which Yahuwah speaks to you. O house of Israel, thus says Yahuwah, do not learn the way of the Gentiles, the heathens. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them. One pause for a while. Bible says he's speaking to the house of Israel, right? And he's telling the house of Israel, do not learn the way of the Gentiles. And what is, what is one of the ways of the Gentiles? The Gentiles, they are dismayed at the signs of heaven. What does that mean? You see, something happens around December 21st, which they consider a bad sign. And to kind of protect themselves from being destroyed, to protect themselves from this ominous sign, well, they do something. And so what is the sign of heaven that they are dismayed at? It's the winter solstice. Because at that day, sunlight is at its minimum, right? When is the, out of all the days of the year, when is the day the shortest? Yeah, the day is the shortest winter solstice. What's happening to the sun? The sun is being conquered, right? And so what do they do? They worship the sun god. So December 25th is the birthday of the sun because by December 25th, they're noticing, look at the signs, the sun is growing back in power. It's the birth of the unconquerable sun, Sol Invictus, right? And so what do they do when December 25th, uh, 21st comes around? When the winter solstice comes around? When they're beginning to notice the days are becoming shorter and shorter and shorter. They want to protect themselves by worshiping the sun god. They want to protect themselves by worshiping the tree, which represents the sun god who comes into uh, man form in the form of Tammuz. Okay, so do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them, for the customs of the peoples are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe, they decorate it with silver and gold, they fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. Isn't that the Christmas tree? You see, the sun god and the Christmas tree, they go hand in hand. Because one represents the sun god, um, which is Nimrod, and the tree, Tammuz. Right? So Nimrod becomes a god in heaven, the sun god, and then Tammuz becomes the resurrected uh, Nimrod. And so they go together, and so they, they create a system so that when... The winter solstice comes around, they will appease themselves so that the unconquerable sun would continue to shine its rays so that eventually they would receive the blessing from these false gods. This is why we don't, you know, it would not be a good idea to bring a tree, a Christmas tree, into your house and then to decorate it because it would be like you are worshiping Tammuz which is a false god, okay? All right, so let's go, let's go with number two. This, what does the Bible say about celebrating Christmas? What do you think? Now that you know about the pagan origins of Christmas, its customs, 
and even the tree, what do you think? Do you think we should even um, think about celebrating Christmas? Well, this is what Apostle Paul has to say in Romans 12, 1 to 2. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, a kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So, so let's answer the question, should we, followers of Yahushua, even celebrate uh, so-called Christmas? Well, the Bible says it depends on who you are. What do you mean? Well, it depends if you want to give yourselves wholly to God. And I think as members of the Assembly of Yahushua, I think it's time to be fully committed to Yahuwah. There's no half-hearted commitment here. There's no middle ground. There's no lukewarm commitment. Remember what Yahushua said to those who were lukewarm? <laughs> Yahushua said, I would uh, yes, vomit you out of my mouth. When it comes to worshiping Yahuwah, there's no middle ground. We have to be fully committed. This is why it's called the living sacrifice. When you think of a sacrifice, there's no half burnt sacrifice. It's either burnt or you're not burnt. It's either you're dead or you're alive. And so what Apostle Paul is telling us, are you committed to Yahuwah? Are you committed to Yahushua? If that is the case, then give yourself, give your body as a living sacrifice to God by presenting yourself as living and holy sacrifice. What does that mean? We have to be separate from the customs of the world. This is why to answer the question, should we celebrate Christmas? Brethren, how do you see yourself? If we see ourselves as true sons and daughters of Yahuwah, then we will not. We will be separate from the customs of this world. What customs of this world should we be separate from? Let's read the book of Ephesians 4, 17 to 28, 20. Not all customs are bad. For example, there's the custom of working out, right? The custom of eating well. I mean, nowadays people kind of put that out there. It's good to take care of your body, get enough sleep. That's all good, right? Not all customs are bad. But what customs should we reject? In particular, I want to urge you in the name of the Lord not to give on, not to go on living the aimless kind of life that pagans live. Intellectually, they are in the dark and they are estranged from the life of God without knowledge because they have shut their hearts to it. Now, that is hardly the way you have learned from Christ unless you fail to hear him properly when you were taught what the truth is in Yahusha. And so according to Apostle Paul, what should we reject? What customs of the world should we have no part of? It is the aimless kind of life that pagans live the kind of life that is estranged from the life of God. And when we think of the Christmas celebration, that kind of celebration is associated with so much um, pagan worship. It is really a rebellion against God because the Christmas celebration today is involved with Saul, the son of God, Nimrod and Tammuz, Mammon, 
right? Because when you people celebrate Christmas today, they might say, you know, we don't really know who Saul is. We don't really practice the modern Tammuz worship. But many people today, when Christmas comes around, what do they think about, right? Consumerism, materialism, Santa Claus, gift giving, right? And so that's mammon. <laughs> the spirit of mammon. You got Saul, Nimrod, Tammuz, mammon. That is associated with the Christmas celebration. And so Apostle Paul says, you know, have nothing to do with customs that have, which practice an aimless way of conduct and are estranged from the life with God. No one might say, well, we just want to have family time. Is it wrong to have family time? No, it's good. We should practice and create opportunities to bond with family members, people we love, right? Is Yahuwah against this? No. But why are we going to use as family time something which Yahuwah does not want us to practice? If we want to practice family time, Yahuwah gave us. You know what Yahuwah gave us for family time? Allow me to read the book of Leviticus. Yahuwah said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. These are Yahuwah's appointed festivals, which are to proclaim as official days for holy assembly. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of complete rest, an official day for a holy assembly. It is Yahuwah's Sabbath day, and it must be observed wherever you live. In addition to the Sabbath, these are Yahuwah's appointed festivals, the official days for holy assembly that are to be celebrated at their proper times each year. Does Yahuwah want us to have family time? Yeah. And the good thing is, in this family time Yahuwah talks about, he wants to involve himself. In this family time, the best way we can spend family is when we do so, celebrating, delighting in the presence of Yahuwah and Yahusha. And Yahuwah gave us appointed times. These are the festivals of Yahuwah and the Sabbath days. Yahuwah gave us these days as days where we can edify each other as we delight in the presence of Yahuwah and Yahusha. This is why these are our holidays. At least 52 times a week, we have the opportunity to connect with our loved ones and to connect with Yahuwah at the same time, right? This is why as followers of Yahusha, members of the assembly of Yahusha for the, for the year that is to come, let us plan our Sabbath days more. Make it festive because Yahuwah wants the festivals festive. That's why it's called a festival, right? He wants it to be filled with joy and gladness, including the Sabbath. It's a day of delight where we delight in Yahuwah and Yahusha and delight each other's company, right? That's why, you know, it would be better if we make that something where our children look forward to it. Oh, we can't wait for Sabbath because we're going to have this time together with Yahuwah. And it's going to be festive. Oh, we can't wait for, this, for the Passover. We can't wait for Pentecost. We can't wait for Tabernacles because we know it's going to be a holiday. And it's going to be festive and joyful. We should make that festive and filled with joy because we delight in Yahuwah. So we should make Yahuwah's feast and Sabbaths be festive family times when we delight in Yahuwah and Yahusha and be filled with joy. And so Yahuwah knows we need this. That's why he gave us the feast and the Sabbaths. But you know what Yahusha said? Even though Yahuwah 
provides for the needs of human beings, including their need for joy and delight. This is what Yahusha said in Mark. Their worship is a farce. What's a farce? It's fake. <laughs> for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. Isn't this what man is doing? Then he said, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. And so what does God's law say? Have Passover. What does God's law say? Have tabernacles. What does God's law say? Have Sabbath. But we sidestep this and we create our own traditions. Like Easter and Christmas. Right? They replace what Yahuwah intended for our benefit, for our delight. This is why we need to make sure that when we lead our children, when we lead our families, we follow the will of Yahuwah. We create a culture of following Yahuwah. We create a culture where the feast and the Sabbath are days of joy because we worship Yahuwah and Yahusha. And so, so that we don't fall into into believing man-made traditions and obeying them as though they were commandments of Abba, what should we do? Bible says, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So we need to be in the habit of testing things. So we have this custom, let's test it. How do we test it? Use the scripture. How else, what must we do once we test it? Well, keep what is good, but every form, even the form, even the form of evil, even the form of wickedness, we have to abstain. And so when we looked at the Christmas celebration, we know it had the form of paganism. Not only that, it had the form of idol worship, right? And so we should abstain from the Christmas celebration. And why must we do this? Let's go to Leviticus 20, 23. Do not live according to the customs of the people I am driving out before you. Yahuwah delivered his people from Egypt. And then he's taking them to Canaan. So we have two influences here. The influence of Egypt, the influence of Canaan. Look at what Yahuwah says in Leviticus 18. Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. I am Yahuwah, your God. Do not act like the people in Egypt where you used to live or like the people of Canaan where I am taking you. You must not imitate your way of life. You must obey all my regulations and be careful to obey my decrees for I am Yahuwah your God. If you obey my decrees and my regulations, you will find life through them. I am Yahuwah. You see, when Yahuwah delivered Israel from Egypt, he was going to make them into a holy nation. Yahuwah says, you must be holy because I am holy. Apostle Peter uses that quote and speaks to the Christians or the followers of Yahushua. And he says to Yehushans, you must be holy because God is holy. What does it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart. It means to be different. This is why Yahuwah speaking to his, his people, Israel, he says, be different from Egypt. Be different from Canaan. Where you came from, be different from that. Where you're going to, be different from that. How can we be different? By following the laws and the commandments of Yahuwah. So we, the followers of Yahuwah, we, everything we do is from him because we are the children of Yahuwah Abba. What's the danger if we're going to compromise this? If we're going to say, 
it's a harmless Christmas celebration, no big deal. Deuteronomy, do not fall into the trap of following the customs and worshiping the gods. Do not inquire about the gods, saying, how do these nations worship their gods? I want to follow their example. You must not worship your you must not worship Yahweh your God the way the other nations worship their gods, for they perform for their gods every detestable act that Yahuwah hates. They even burn their sons and daughters as sacrifices to their gods. And so according to Yahuwah, we must not, we have to be careful about getting into a trap. How does that trap begin? How do people get into a trap? When they compromise, when they look at a custom and they don't investigate or look at look into it, they don't bother asking Yahuwah for guidance. They just adopt the custom without testing it. And so what happens when they begin to compromise and they begin to adopt a custom that Yahuwah does not want us to adopt? Bible says they begin to inquire about certain things and pretty soon they assimilate into that custom, a custom that is built upon the foundation laid by Nimrod, which was started long ago. And in Deuteronomy, in Canaan, right? All of that are influenced by the ways of Nimrod. And even today, the philosophical system, the religious of today, it's all influenced by Nimrod. And this is why if we're not careful, we can adopt that. And if that ends up happening, then we are not worshiping Yahuwah the way he wants to be worshipped. Just like what he said, you must not worship Yahuwah your God the way the other nations worship their gods. Because the other nations worship their gods according to the system of Nimrod, the system of the Antichrist. And if we are going to compromise with that, what will we be unable to do? Take a look at 2 Kings 17. And though they worship Yahuwah, and so they worship Yahuwah, right? So the Bible is telling us these people are worshiping Yahuwah, people of Israel. They continue to follow their own gods according to the religious customs of the nations from which they came. And this is still going on today. They continue to follow their former practices instead of truly worshiping Yahuwah. Yahuwah says, you know, yeah, they worship me. But what's the problem? They worship me and, did you get that? They worship me and they continue to follow their own gods according to the religious customs of the nations. In other words, they were not fully separated. What does separation mean again? To be holy. You see, for us to belong to Yahuwah, we need to sever. This is why we have the circumcision covenant. Circumcision means to sever. It's a symbol of severing our ties with the influence of pagans in the world so that we can be set apart for Yahuwah. Today, of course, that severance is in the form of baptism. When we sever the old man, right, so we can become new creations in Christ Yahusha through baptism. But the idea is separation. We need to be separate from the world. We cannot worship Yahuwah and at the same time follow the customs of the world. We cannot truly worship Yahuwah in that way. And the customs of the world is, is in, that is involved in Christmas, merrymaking, exchanging of gifts, decorating your homes, uh, the Yule log, the giving of cakes, the greenery, the fir trees, fires and lights, all of that are pagan. 
But not only that, if you still remember, the Christmas celebration is associated with the worship of Saul, the sun god, and also the worship of Nimrod and Tammuz. And when you think about these two things, Saul, the sun god, and Tammuz, do you think, I want you to think about this. Do you think Yahuwah wants us to be associated with Saul, the sun god, or with Nimrod, or with Tammuz? What do you think? I mean, even if we say we don't, we don't know who Saul is, we don't know Nimrod, we don't know Tammuz, but if we're associated with celebrations that have their foundation or origins with Saul and Tammuz and Nimrod, I don't think Yahuwah wants us to participate in activities like that, right? What's the proof? I'm going to show you something here. It's really astonishing. In the book of Ezekiel 8, 13 to 15. Then the Lord added, Come and I will show you even more detestable sins than these. Yahuwah was showing Ezekiel in a vision about the sins of Israel. The first one he showed him was idolatry. And then he goes on to say, Then the Lord, uh, then Yahuwah added, Come and I will show you even more detestable sins. More detestable than idolatry? That's pretty bad, huh? Verse 14, he brought me to the north gate of Yahuwah's temple, and some women were sitting there weeping for the god Tammuz. You see, by this time, this myth, this false religion of Tammuz and Nimrod, it was already deeply rooted in many Canaanite nations, and it was adopted by people of Israel. And this is what is really causing Yahuwah to be angry. Not only do they have idols and idolatry, they even weep for the god Tammuz, right? Not only that, 15, take a look at this. Have you seen this? Yes. But I will show you even more detestable sins than these. And so Yahuwah begins with idolatry, and he tells Ezekiel, look, there's something worse than that. These women are weeping for Tammuz. There's something worse than that. You want to know what it is? Let's read. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. Then he brought me into the inner courtyard of Yahuwah's temple. At the entrance to the sanctuary, between the entry room and the bronze altar, there were about 25 men with their backs to the sanctuary, to the sanctuary of Yahuwah. They were facing east, bowing low to the ground, worshiping the sun. There are two detestable things proclaimed by Yahuwah to Ezekiel. What were they? They involved the worship of the sun god, and they involved weeping for Tammuz. And both are associated with what? The Christmas celebration. And so, brethren, I don't know about you, but there's something that we have to do. You know, I was debating about, should I do this lesson again? Because I remember we did this lesson before, but I believe it's my duty to do so, because in the book of Isaiah 58, verse 1, it says, cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Somebody has to blow the trumpet, right? Because many might be thinking, especially those who are no longer in the institution, and so because they left the institution, they say to themselves, I'm free, I can do whatever I want. And so many people, you know, they begin to act and adopt the customs of the world, including the Christmas festivals. 
the Christmas celebration. And so we have to sound the alarm. We have to make sure we must not associate ourselves when it comes to the Christmas celebration. Hopefully, uh, this lesson will, will fulfill its purpose when those who listen to it will be moved by the spirit of Abba to choose him and not the customs and the ways of the world. We're almost done. <laughs> These are shorter, shorter answers. How about for business? How can one not participate in any pagan activities when the whole world is celebrating Christmas? It's true. The whole world is celebrating Christmas. However, this is what the Apostle Paul says, and what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are a temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says Yahuwah. Don't touch your filthy things and I will welcome you. And I will be your father and you will be my sons and daughters, says Yahuwah Almighty. And so what if you know, everyone's celebrating Christmas and you feel left out, right? And you feel like you're being shortchanged when it comes to having fun. Bible says we have to be different from unbelievers. Why? Because we are the temple of the living God. That's what the assembly is. That's what you are as an individual. You are the temple of the living God. You're living stones of the temple of the living God. And so because we are to be different, we should, we should be separate from the world. And if we will do this, the Bible says Yahuwah will be our father. But it's so hard. You know, I love the custom of the world. Apostle John tells us, do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. Yes, we know. I mean, who doesn't want to have fun? Who doesn't want to, you know, experience the joy of the world? The world offers its, its version of its joy, especially during the Christmas season. But there's a better joy. Many people think, you know, the joy of, Chris, of Christmas, the happiness of Christmas, so on and so forth. But brethren, there's so much better. There's something more better. There's something much, much better than that. What is that? It's the joy that comes from loving the Father, who is Yahuwah, and being with his son, Yahusha. That's what joy is. The joy the world promises you, the joy that the world offers you, that's fake joy. It's about materialism, consumerism. It's about drunkenness and revelry. It's fake joy. On, on the, the photos, they look very happy. But inside, there's emptiness. It's hollow, hollow joy. It doesn't last. But there's a kind of joy that will be so strong, even in the midst of tribulation, you will be filled with joy. That's the joy the Father offers. But we can only receive this joy if we reject the joy of the world. This is why, brothers and sisters, let's not be tempted you know, by what the world offers. Let us be thirsty for what the Father offers, which is true and lasting joy through his son, Yahushua. Number five, is it okay to participate in the office Christmas party? <laughs> I think you know, it depends on what kind of party it is. I mean, as people of Yahuwah, we don't engage in revelry, right? What is revelry? It's a party that has sex and booze and drugs, or it's in cast and lewdness. This is why it doesn't matter what kind of party it is. I mean, it, 
or what season this party is being celebrated. It doesn't matter if it's a Christmas party, a Halloween party. If it's a party that involves, involves revelry, we should say no to that, right? Even if they call it a Christmas party, an office party, we should say no to that. Well, how about if it's an innocent Christmas party? Well, we have to keep in mind uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Apostle Paul writes in, in Corinthians chapter 10 about our relationship with pagans. Because as Christians, as Yahushans today, we interact with the world, right? We have employers, employees, we have neighbors who are pagan, who are not also of the same faith, right? So how do we interact with them? Apostle Paul writes in Corinthians chapter 10 how we do that. Let's look at 10, 14. It says, so my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. So if the Christmas party at your office involves idol worship, what should you do? It says flee. <laughs> well, I'm going to get fired. It says flee. <laughs> I mean, if the office party will require you to participate in some kind of ritual expressed for idols, flee from that, Apostle Paul says. But most likely, if you talk about a, a typical Christian party today, it probably doesn't offer, it doesn't have, what do you call that? Uh, idols? I don't know. Maybe it does. I don't know what kind of office it is. So you have to be wise about that. Apostle Paul says, flee from the worship of idols. Why does he say, flee from the worship of idols? Uh, what I'm trying to uh, what am I trying to say? Am I saying that food offered to idols has some significance? Or that idols are real gods? No, not at all. I'm saying that these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want to participate with demons. You cannot drink from the cup of the Lord from the cup of demons too. You cannot eat at the Lord's table and at the table of demons too. What? Do we dare to rouse the Lord's jealousy? Do you think we are stronger than he is? Apostle Paul's making an argument here. And he's telling us, look. We, who are followers of Yahusha, we partake of the supper, right? It's our covenant with Yahusha. And so we partake of the bread, which is his body. We drink of the wine, which is his blood. So if we do this, it means we make a commitment. We make our loyalty to who? Yahusha. We have a covenant with him. We are his bride. That's what it means. And so because of this, we must not partake in the table of demons. And so if there's a party that involves not just revelry, but idolatry, we have to say no. In fact, Apostle Paul used the word flee. You run away as fast as you can, even if it means you have to lose your job. If it's an idolatry, run away from it, right? But then Apostle Paul adds after 22, the following uh, teaching, 23 to 24. Uh, it says, you say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. You see, in Apostle Paul's a letter to the Corinthians in 23 to 24, he's talking about a different case now, a case where there's no idolatry. In other words, you're not aware that there's any kind of idolatry going on. So maybe uh, it was you were invited for entertainment, right? You were invited for a regular party. It doesn't have religious overtones. You're invited. Apostle Paul says, good, you know, you can do that. But at the same time, he says, you know, because there are those who point to Christian liberty, which is what we have as followers of Yahushua, we have liberty. But at the same time, Apostle Paul says, yes, you say I'm allowed to do anything. But he also said at the same time, not everything is good for you. Number two, not everything is beneficial. 
So when Apostle Paul tells us we have Christian liberty, we need to weigh matters out. We need to look at the context of what we're going to do where you're invited for a party. It's called a Christian party or no, Christmas party, right? And so we need to weigh things out. If I go to this party, is it beneficial? Is it going to be for the good of others? Is it going to be for my own good? You ask those questions. Apostle Paul wants us to ask those questions and allow Yahuwah to kind of help us with the answer. And so he mentions this as a principle. And I want you to keep in mind this principle. Not everything that's allowed is good for you. Not everything that is allowed is beneficial for you. Not everything that is allowed is for good for the people with you. Okay? And so we need to think and consider this principle of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 23 to 24. So after he gives the principle, here's an example that he gives. If someone who isn't a believer asks you home for dinner, accept the invitation if you want to. And so Apostle Paul says, you can if you want to. You can also say no if you're not ready for it, if you're not prepared for it. If it bothers your conscience, you can just say no, right? But if you want to, okay, you can do that. But he keeps going. Eat whatever is offered to you without raising questions of conscience. But suppose someone tells you, this meat was offered to an idol. Don't eat it. Out of consideration for the conscience of the one who told you. It might not be a matter of conscience for you, but it is for the other person. For why should my freedom be limited by what someone else thinks? Or if I, if, I, if I can thank God for the food and enjoy it, why should I be condemned for eating it? So Apostle Paul says, you are invited by someone who's not a believer. And I think for many office parties today, I think it's, it's become a secular party now. It's no longer involving religion, right? Because it's again, you can't impose your faith in an office party. So the Christmas party of today is not really a Christmas party where people worship Jesus, right? It's more like a get together, fellowship with your fellow employees, your fellow workers. And so that's the case. Apostle Paul says, if an unbeliever asks you for to go to his house for dinner, he says, accept the invitation, right? But if you find out what they're going to feed you with is something that was offered to idols, then he says, don't eat it. Because it will ruin the conscience of the one who's asking you and your own conscience as well. And then Apostle Paul goes on to ask, wait a minute, why should my freedom be limited by what someone else thinks? And so Apostle Paul is making a, an argument that someone might ask, because Apostle Paul told them, okay, don't eat it because someone tells you it's offered to an idol, don't eat it. And so someone might ask, well, why should my freedom be limited by someone who, by what someone else thinks? If I can thank God for the food and enjoy it, why should I be condemned for eating it? And so Apostle Paul gives the answer in verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't give offense to Jews or Gentiles or the church of God. I too try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what is best for me, which is very different from what the world thinks today, right? People in the world think today, I do what is best for me. Apostle Paul says, no, I don't do what is best for me. I do what is best for others so that many may be saved 
and you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. This is why Apostle Paul, when he said, if you're invited by a pagan into his house and have uh, entertainment there, he says, go ahead if you can. But at the same time, your purpose should be to try and convert them, to try and save them. Apostle Paul says, you should imitate, uh, I do what is best for others so that many may be saved. You see, if we are, if we are invited to an office party, and they call it a Christmas party. And if you're up to it, why not go there for the purpose of talking to them about Yahusha, right? It's the perfect opportunity. If they're going to insist it's a Christmas party, you can ask them, oh, does it actually say in the Bible, December 25 is the birthday? Oh, what is his real name? Oh, how about the sun god? What are you doing? You have the opportunity to share your faith. And so by doing so, you have the opportunity to save others so that they can be led into the right way of thinking according to the Holy Bible. This is why when we're invited or when we have, we have been told to go to a certain party for our work, we have to put this, give this, keep this in mind. It says, do not give offense to Jews or Gentiles. It's our approach. If we're going to bombast them with criticism, we're going to offend them. So we lose the opportunity for what? Evangelism. And so we have to also keep that in mind. We try to please everyone in the sense that we open communication. We open the door. We open the opportunity to share our faith. Okay, hopefully that's clear. Uh, is it okay to give on Christmas? We often decline to give to caroler, carolers, telling them we don't celebrate Christmas. We give every day, but we don't give during Christmas. So someone comes to you, oh, we're going to sing caroling songs. Oh, I don't believe in Christmas. What are you doing? You're driving them away. You're offending them. Is there something else that we can do? Well, what should be our guideline? In the book of Acts 20.35, and I have been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard. You should remember the words of the Lord Yahushua. It is more blessed to give than to, you see, Apostle Paul tells us it's uh, that Yahushua said, right, according to Lord Yahushua himself, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so not just, and this, this teaching is not just, is not for December. <laughs> this is for all time, right? So if you're only going to be giving during December, then we need to ask our motivations. Why are we doing this in the first place? So if we give, and it's our way of, and this is what we do throughout the year. I don't think there's anything wrong with giving during December because it's what you do. And you're simply following the teaching of Yahushua. It's more blessed to give than to receive. But if I do that, am I not like practicing idolatry? I don't think so. We have to weigh certain things. We have to be wise in our decisions. That's why Yahushua said in Matthew 23, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. And so there's commandments, and there are letters of the commandments, but there is what the apostles, what Yahushua himself says as, the more important aspects of the law. What is that? Justice, mercy, and faith. And it's with this in mind, I believe, 
Now, the Apostle Paul says, whatever you do, do for the glory of God, for the benefit of others. And so if there's a Christmas caroler and they're singing a song for you, right? Why not prepare maybe a pamphlet you can give out about Yahusha or you can send them a note about the assembly of Yahusha and then give them, you know, what they want to, what they're asking for out of mercy, right? Because we want to give the opportunity to share our faith, not to uh, give an offense to Jews or Gentiles or pagans. Instead, we provide the opportunity to share our faith. Instead of saying humbug, right? We say, you know, you're, you're singing, but I want you to know, you know, what the real, when Christ was really born or who Yahusha truly is. I want you to know what he wants you to do instead, right? Isn't that better than saying humbug, closing the door on the opportunity to share your faith? And so I think that's something that we can practice. And lastly, number seven, should we not accept our Christmas bonus mandated by law? So what is the Christmas bonus anyway? And so when you do the research, according to recruitingblogs.com, the purpose of the Christmas bonus really was to kind of win the loyalty of the employees so that they stick with your company. They don't want like their employees to go to another company that's opening up, the competitor. They want you to stick with them. And so they give you like certain, they call it Christmas bonus. So the custom of remembering the workers, that's what they call it, Christmas bonus, began in the 19th century with offerings such as turkeys, candy, gold coins, or watches. That's what they used to give as the uh, remembering the worker's gift. I don't think it was called Christmas bonus. Cash bonuses were first introduced by Woolworth, uh, Woolworth Company in 1899, rewarded employees with $5 for each year of service. Back then, it was a lot of money. <laughs> right? In 1902, J.P. Morgan and Company ushered in big money bonuses by giving each employee a full-year salary. Wow! as a Christmas present. Going forward, gifts of cash became increasingly standard and calculated as a percentage of wages. While some companies offered a bonus to every employee, others made the Christmas present contingent on length of service or a worker's performance. By the 1950s, the Christmas bonus uh, was starting to lose its quote unquote gift status as workers began to expect the year-end entitlement. Around this time, cash bonuses became a separate category of payment from the regular paycheck and therefore taxed differently. So that's the evolution of the Christmas bonus. It started out as loyalty pay, right? To gain your loyalty. And then it became expected. It became part of the agreement. If you're an employee, this was part of the, the agreement and eventually even became law, right? It, it became law. And so while many companies have moved away from the holiday bonus, there are still some countries which require a 13th salary, the equivalent of one month's salary be paid to employees. Argentina, Brazil, Italy, Costa Rica, and look at that, the Philippines and Angola are just a few countries who mandate it. And so it's part of the system. It's part of the law that governs um, employer-employee relationships. So it's part of the part of the agreement. And so before it was kind of a gift to incentivize your loyalty, then it became um, contingent upon your work performance. And then it became part of the law, right? In other words, 
it eventually evolved into really something that is given to those who are worthy of it or something that is given to someone who has earned it or worked for it. With that in mind, Apostle Paul says, those who work are paid wages. But they are not regarded as a gift. They are something that has been earned. And so when you belong to an employer, you're an employee, right? especially in the country you mentioned, the bonus, well, that's not really, it has nothing to do with Christmas. It has something to do with your wages as part of the agreement and the contract between your employer and the employee. And so there is no um, violation of, of there, there's no celebration of Christmas in receiving the Christmas bonus. And I think the, the biggest um, sacrifice for many of us is when all the people of the world are having fun and we're kind of, you know, sensing we're kind of missing out, we're having fun, I'm not allowed to do that. But Yahuwah says, you know, when we make that sacrifice, he says, what can, in verse 17, come out from among unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says Yahuwah. Don't touch your filthy things, and I will welcome you. And I will be your father, and you will be my sons and daughters, says Yahuwah Almighty. You see, brethren, becoming a son and daughter of Yahuwah comes at a price. I hope you understand that. It comes at a cost. It's not a monetary cost. To become a son and daughter of Yahuwah comes with what we call the cost of discipleship. Yahushua, when he was here, he taught us how to be a true disciple. He said, if you truly want to be my disciple, you have to be willing to do what? Deny yourself. Apostle Paul says, if you are a true son and daughter of Yahuwah, then you have to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. What does that mean? We have to sacrifice and be different from the world. And when we do that, Yahuwah says, I will be your father and you'll be my sons and daughters. Is it worth it? I think so. Absolutely worth it to be a son and daughter of Yahuwah than to be a child of the world. It's much better to be a son of the one who created the whole world and the entire universe. That is our lesson. Let us stand and we shall pray together. Almighty and most holy Father Yahuwah, gracious Abba, thank you so much for blessing your people tonight, for giving us guidance so that we can make proper decisions. We know, Father, every choice we make in this life should reflect our faith. We have made a commitment to you when we call you Yahuwah, when we receive baptism into the body of your son, Yahushua. We will make known to the world our commitment and loyalty, loyalty to you and to your son by renouncing the ways of the world that we may adopt your ways. Father, help us that we may be wise. Teach us to test all things and to make a commitment to what is right, to do what is good, to proclaim it boldly. Father, please bless the families who are here. We know that you want what is good for each one of us, for our children. They grow up in this culture, culture that defies you, that raises its fist against you. 
Father, may you open their eyes that they will long for you, make their loyalty, loyalty to you, that, Father, they will always be with you forevermore. Teach us, Father, to make our Sabbaths count, to make our festivals filled with worship and joy, that we may receive your presence that strengthens our faith. Our King Yahushua, we remember you. Indeed, you died for each one of us. And so we will remember these feasts because they point to you. You are most important of all. You are the Logos. You are our Savior. You are the one who loves us. We commit ourselves to you. We are loyal to you. We will follow your teachings and keep ourselves pure to the best of our ability. Father, thank you so much for listening to our prayers. Bless your people throughout the world. For we ask everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen.